Welcome to session nine in our study of James. Today we'll be in chapter four and discussing verses seven through 17. Okay, so remember what it was like as a child waiting for Christmas to come. The excitement, the anticipation, how the days leading up to it seemed to last forever. Remember how long the last days of school before summer break seemed to last? And how hard was it waiting for birthdays to roll around? But now that we're adults, it seems like Christmases come and go in the blink of an eye. And birthdays? I feel like I'm accumulating birthdays faster than I can blow the candles off my cake. The older we get, the more aware we become that life is short. It's a vapor, James says in verse 414, that appears for a little while, then vanishes. And in chapter 4, 7 through 17, James is addressing the issue that if life truly is that short, then how should we live in light of that? And in this passage, he gives us three ways. In verse 7 through 10, we need to turn to God and take sin seriously. In verses 11 and 12, we should love our neighbors. And in verses 13 through 17, we should seek his will in all things. So let's read James 4, 7 through 17. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, for it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. So in verse 7, it says, therefore submit to God, which is referring back to verse 6 that we discussed last time, which says, he gives greater grace. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we truly grasp the magnitude of God's grace, his unmerited favor toward us, then we're going to be motivated to submit to him, to bring ourselves under his control. The word submit in this context is a military term, which means to get into your proper rank. We must know our place in God's order. God first, then others, then us. One theologian says a private who acts like a general can cause a lot of problems. So why is it so important to submit ourselves to God? Well, because that's how we're going to gain the strength to resist the devil, as it said in verse 7. Because just as we learned last week, conflict comes from within ourselves because of envy and selfish ambition. And conflict comes with others through fights and quarrels. And James is telling us here that is not the only source of conflict that we face. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Verse 4-7 told us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We must be cognizant of the fact that the devil is real, 
He is active and he wants to destroy us. Many Christians are tentative about discussing the devil and hell because it's scary or distasteful. But that mentality plays right into the devil's hand. Because remember, he is like a lion. And what does a lion most often choose as his prey? Well, the animal who is unaware of his presence. The animal who is not being watchful. The one that is oblivious to the danger lurking around him. As I have said before, the best way to mount a defense is to know your enemy. And James is reminding us, you have an enemy. But don't worry, he is not undefeatable. The devil can be resisted. Verse 7 says, he will flee from you. I love this. Have you ever thought that you have the power through Jesus to make Satan not just leave you alone, but to run away? The Greek word for flee here is beugo, meaning to escape, to seek safety from, by flight, to flee something abhorrent. So when we place ourselves under the lordship of Christ, we become dangerous to the devil. We become abhorrent to him. We become people he and his demons want to run away from. So we Christians must never underestimate our power through Christ to defeat the works of the devil, and we must never give up resisting him. In verses 8 through 10, it goes on to say, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So there are nine commands that God is giving us here that if followed will help us live a life of holiness. They are draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn and weep, turn laughter to mourning, joy to gloom, and humble yourself before the Lord. Now, granted, these sound like pretty weighty and, frankly, depressing commands. I mean, mourn, gloom, weep. But there's a deeper message that James is trying to convey here. Actually, I believe, other than Paul, James is one of the most matter-of-fact, straight-to-the-point authors in all of Scripture. He has a tendency to get right to the heart of the issue, and he doesn't pull any punches because he knows life is short. There's no time for empty flattery and coddling his audience. If you call yourself a Christian, then get serious about it, he seems to be saying. The time for apathy is over. Now, it's not really a warm and fuzzy message, but it is a necessary one. I mean, have you heard all the talk about America being or soon becoming a post-Christian society? But how? How or why does our culture seem to be moving so far away from Christian values? Well, I believe through many small incremental steps away from God's truth. Many Christians, slowly over time, have stopped taking their faith seriously. One allowance here, one acceptance there, throw in some excuses, and then bam, we're wondering how we got here. I recently read a quote that said, Demonstrating the gospel is even more important now than ever, because culture has tuned out the things of God. So how do we live out the gospel? Well, by drawing near to God through regular prayer and Bible reading, by obedience to his word, we must be cleansed and purified, verse 8 says, meaning we must confess our sins to God and repent or turn away from them. 
this idea of washing and purifying it's familiar language to his jewish audience the priests had to cleanse and purify themselves before coming before the lord to make sacrifices in exodus 30 17 through 21 and james is reiterating the fact that we should take our sin seriously now as christians we are under grace the way to heaven is through jesus not our own goodness but we still must contend with sin that hinders our relationship with him and can hamper our testimony verse 9 says to grieve mourn weep turn laughter to mourning joy to gloom so does this mean that god wants us to be miserable all the time well no that's not really the point one commentator says god graciously draws near to us when we deal with the sin in our lives that keeps him at a distance it's contrition that james says is needed here continuous unconfessed unrepentant sin pulls us away from god it drags us down steals our joy and ruins our witness psalm 51:17 in the nlt says the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit you will not reject a broken and repented heart O god when we humble ourselves as verse 10 tells us then god exalts us or lifts us up so this clearly answers the question as to whether god wants us to live in a continuous state of sadness and gloom he will lift up the humble another promise just like in verse 7 the devil will flee from those who draw near to god and resist him matthew 23 12 tells us whoever exalts himself will be humbled whoever humbles himself will be exalted we must recognize god's presence in all our ways one theologian said it's just like a tree for a tree to grow upwards it must have roots that go deep downwards for a person to be exalted they must have a mind and heart that is deeply rooted in humility i've heard it said the way up is down god wants us to be god wants us to place ourselves under his authority and lordship which will result in god lifting us up and let me tell you nothing or no one can lift us up like god can the word exalt in verse 10 means to lift up on high to raise to dignity and honor and happiness there is no greater happiness joy honor and fulfillment than what god gives to those who humble themselves before him humbling ourselves before the lord not only blesses us with joy and happiness but it also leads to people peaceful relationships with others we must allow god to lift us up though because in verses 11 and 12 it explains what happens when we try to exalt ourselves it says don't criticize one another brothers and sisters anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames or judges the law if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge and there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor so anyone who criticizes defames or judges another believer is actually sitting in judgment over god's law which says to love your neighbor as yourself in leviticus 19:18. so this person is actually putting themselves in place of god by determining who is and is not worthy but there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy and it is not us we must trust god to lift us up in his perfect timing and not try to do it ourselves by bringing others down 
So a person who has a cavalier attitude toward their own sin will often be judgmental toward others, and they will often assume that they have control over their lives and futures. In verses 13 through 17, it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. One commentator describes the person in this passage as being self-assertive in his travel plans, self-confident in his time, and self-centered in his business dealings. This person is not acknowledging God in any way here. The implication is of a Jewish merchant who is trying to drum up business and make money, as if that is what will bring him security and stability in his life. These people were making plans for a year when in reality, they can't see ahead even one day. They're trusting in their own blind confidence that they have everything under control. Yet James reminds us that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Job 8, 9 says, our days on this earth are but a shadow. Job 9, 25 says, my days fly faster than a runner. Our days may be brief, but they are not insignificant. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 tells us that we were formed by God. We are remarkably and wondrously made. His eyes saw us before we were even born, and all our days were written in his book and planned before a single one of them began. So my husband and I have been enjoying watching the Olympics. And while I enjoy some of the events more than others, I've been fascinated by the skill, strength, the poise and agility of human beings at the height of their athletic careers. Most of the athletes have trained the majority of their lives for this occasion. Their entire life's work culminating in this one brief moment in time. And what is their goal? Olympic glory. But how long does this kind of glory really last? I mean, can you remember who won the gold in the 100 meter hurdles four years ago? Human glory is fleeting, and those who pursue it at all costs will come up empty and unfulfilled in the long run. So rather than looking to the past and reminiscing over the glory days, if we live a life in pursuit of bringing glory to God, every day can be a glory day. We must invest ourselves into what truly matters if life is so fleeting. But instead, we boast in our arrogance, as verse 16 says, as if we have total control over our lives. One commentator says, Humans have neither the wisdom to see the future nor the power to control it. Therefore, for him to boast is sinful, making himself like God. Verse 15 says, Instead, you should say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. These people were ignoring God's will. Now granted, life is so complex, there are so many decisions to consider. Where to live, where to work, how to live. But having a relationship with Jesus brings order and purpose to all of it. The fact that God has a will and purpose for each of us is gracious evidence of his love for us. Self-focused boasting should be replaced by God-honoring trust.
we should be acknowledging God in all our ways and trusting him to direct our paths, as Psalm 3, 5, and 6 tells us. But we don't always do that, do we? We often compartmentalize our lives. God over here, job over there, personal relationships over there. But when we only allow Jesus into one area of our lives, we're missing out on tremendous blessings in all the other areas. Jesus wants and should be a part of every decision we make. Now, if you tend to overthink things like I do, you might be wondering at this point, so does that mean I need to stop and pray every time I make a decision? I mean, do I need to pray for what color shirt to wear or what to eat for dinner? Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you choose to do so, but I'm reminded of, account, I'm reminded of an encounter um, that I had years ago with a person that I greatly admire. Her name is Andre Sue Peterson. She's an author and columnist for World Magazine. Her books and columns have made such an impact on my life that my sweet husband reached out to her after my mom passed away, and he asked if we could meet. And it didn't take long at all before she responded and said, yes, we could meet for lunch. I was beside myself with excitement at the opportunity to meet the person who I held in such high regard. I was honored that she would be so willing to have lunch with a total stranger. So when we met, I had to ask the question, why would you do this? What made you say yes? Now, I expected this super theological answer from someone I regarded as a giant in the faith, although she would never consider herself that way. But she merely responded with, why not? So I kept asking, well, did you spend time in prayer seeking God's direction in this decision? And she basically said, well, when you're walking with Jesus every day and in every way, sometimes you just know. And I thought a lot about this response. And it came to mind that it's kind of like the difference between newlyweds and people who've been married for decades. My father used to say he never had to complete a sentence anymore because my mom could do it for him. They knew each other so well. The longer and more closely that we live with someone we love, the better we understand them, how they think, how they're going to act. And I think the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. He already knows everything about us. How well do we know him? How much time do we spend with him in prayer and in his word? Is he just a part of our life or is he our life? James closes this passage in verse 17 by saying, So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. So we know what we should do now as Christians, don't we? We can't claim plausible deniability. And what is the good we know to do? Submit to God by humbly surrendering to his authority. Draw near to him through prayer and his word. And when he makes sin known to us, we must confess it and ask forgiveness. Because as verse 12 tells us, he is the only one who can save us. Not our spouse, not our family, not our friends, not even ourselves. So in closing today, the challenge is going to be to answer this question. If you knew your life would end in 24 hours, what would you want your loved ones to know? And if they don't know it already, would you consider telling them? Life is a vapor. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Let's make sure we make the most of today by growing in our relationship with Jesus and living a life that honors Him. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
ਸਤਿ ਸ਼੍ਰੀ ਅਕਾਲ